Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Today's podcast is part of our special Revitalize series. Revitalize is our biggest event of the year where we gather over 200 thought leaders for a weekend of community and conversation about the biggest, most important wellness topics of our time. This year, the insights we learned on the Revitalize main stage were too good not to share, so we're broadcasting them all in this special podcast series. Be sure to stay tuned until the end of the podcast so you can hear all the experts answer questions from the live studio audience we had at Revitalize. Enjoy. So two cities, Denver and Oakland, have decriminalized psilocybin. I got to pronounce it. Did I get it right? That was my my mnemonic for you. Not the, it's fine, you're fine. I'm struggling with that word. I just want to say mushrooms. Apparently the the recent people don't like that. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to get this one. Um, at any rate, there will likely be a measure introduced on the 2020 ballot in Oregon. Last year, it was given breakthrough therapy st- status by the FDA for its potential use in depression treatments. And it's not the only one. MDMA, LSD, ayahuasca, marijuana are all on the rise. Yet while stories abound, a forum on microdosing on reddit.com has over 56,000 members alone. Research is scant in many cases. To date, there are only four scientific articles on microdosing. There's no doubt about it, it's become a big thing. But today, on stage, we wanted to ask, do mind-altering drugs truly have a place in wellness? So we've got a lot of great guests to discuss this complicated uh, topic. We've got holistic psychiatrist Dr. Ellen Vora, Dr. Molly Malouf, a concierge physician in the Bay Area, specialized in personalized medicine, and two forces of nature and wellness, <laughs> best-selling author and plant-based pioneer Rich Roll, and Melissa Hartwig-Urban, co-founder of, of Whole30, a woman who needs new introduction. So please give them a round of applause. Mm-hmm. So the interest in LSD, Mushrooms, I'm not going to try to say it again. (laughs) Ayahuasca, MDMA, marijuana boomed over the last decade. The spectrum of opinions varies from it has no place in our culture to perhaps it can help people when taken correctly and supervised by professionals to everything should be legal. My question for all of you to start, we'll go down the line, we'll start with you, Molly. Do mind-altering drugs have a place in wellness? Well, first, I want to add that, again, to reiterate, there isn't actually a lot of research behind this, but there's a lot of practice, especially in San Francisco. So whether or not they have a place or not, people are using them for this, research, for this reason. Um, we've come a long way from the 60s, where people were taking large doses of medicine in order to expand their consciousness. And if anything, I think that... Um, it's going to be an interesting time to see where the research goes. Um, right now, the FDA doesn't approve drugs for health and wellness. They approve drugs for sickness and disease. So I would argue that we need to actually redesign research in order to demonstrate that they can improve health. And this is something that I'm interested in pursuing. So yes or no? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Melissa? I'm going to say it depends so much that this is going to get boring. But in the right context, taking account into things like health history and genetic history and uh, your goals... 
in uh, a therapeutic setting with a trained practitioner with proper integration after the fact and as long as it's not the only wellness practice you're taking on it can Alan? yeah i think it depends on how we define wellness and i think sometimes there's an idea that that's something that's one size fits all you can try this at home and these kinds of medicines are absolutely not that they're not safe for everyone but I come at this from a perspective of mental health. I'm a psychiatrist, and my field is in crisis. We have not really had real innovation since the late 1980s, and a lot of our treatments are not as effective as they should be. This is an untold story, really, and they have heavy burden of side effects. They can be difficult to get off of. They're not necessarily helping everybody. So I think of these substances as a promising new line of potential treatments. Rich? I would say yes in certain limited cases. I'm pro-legalization, and I think the research that is being conducted right now and the early findings that we're seeing are super interesting. And so I think there is a place in terms of how these compounds um, can play a part in terms of mental well-being. Uh, my concern lie more in the ubiquity with which we're seeing it now and the mainstreaming of it. People are looking at these um, these cases of PTSD or what's happening with vets and they're extrapolating from that that this must be fine for everybody. And we're seeing, I think, uh, a lack of maturity with respect to um, the, the practices that we're now seeing in terms of mainstream uh, society and I, I think that's problematic. Um, so I'm coming from a place of, of, of caution and reservation. Can I offer my opinion? <laughs> Please. <laughs> your panel. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I think the answer is mostly no. I think under extreme circumstances when other treatments have failed and under proper supervision, it is very interesting. But I echo Rich's sentiment. This is not a one-size catch-all. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, okay, Maybe I can't talk about spinach because apparently spinach isn't good for everyone now, but like, <laughs> otherwise I'll say like, you know, kelp is good for everyone. What we're talking about here is not good for everyone or necessary, but at any rate. Yeah. If I may. Yes. Uh, I, I think also it's important to, to distinguish between uh, all the different things that we're talking about, mm -hmm. like ayahuasca, marijuana, yeah. psilocybin, you know, these, these are all very different things. Yep. With respect to marijuana though, I think, well, first of all, like, the whole idea that we're calling this plant medicine like drives me insane. It's like, you know, heroin is plant medicine. Like, you know, what do we really mean when we're saying that and what is the inference here? And I think what's problematic, at least in the case of marijuana, is I know that living in Los Angeles, I can't drive down the street more than a couple blocks without seeing a gigantic billboard with, you know, scantily clad women making, you know, smoking pot and making it look like this is this is an aspirational thing that we all should be doing every single day. And you see these dispensaries that look like Apple stores that are packed with people. And what is the message, like what is the marketing message behind that? And I can't escape the sense that what is being said is this does have a place in your daily wellness regimen. And I think that that is uh, a huge problem and fundamentally untrue. Like I'm not a clinician, I'm not a scientist, but I've been in the recovery community for over two decades at this point, and I've seen, I've been to a lot of funerals, and I've seen a lot of people's lives decimated um, through the use of some of the compounds that we're talking about here today. So it's not innocuous, and I think we need to really uh, take a step back 
and reevaluate from a mature perspective what we're really talking about here. Yeah. So do you want to maybe reframe? I was going to start with sort of uh, the uh, more intense drugs. Maybe we start with the less yeah. intense drugs, marijuana, THC. Do you have an opinion on that as well? Melissa? I do. I've been reading a lot about the history of THC in Mexico and in British uh, colonized India. I do think that there's a large lobby right now that is trying to make us believe that it is an everyday part of our like healthy wellness practice. I do not believe it is without risk. You're not adding it to Whole30. No. <laughs> if I did, we'd be a very popular program. Um, and I, I also have been in the recovery community. I'm a recovering addict for more, you know, in recovery for more than 19 years. But I think there's a large association between THC use and harder drugs. I think we talk about it not being physiologically addictive, but we don't talk about the psychological implications. I think people who are using marijuana recreationally now on a daily basis far exceed, like by a factor of 10, the number of people who are drinking alcohol on a daily basis. So the usage is higher. The THC we have now is far more potent than what was around in the 70s. I think uh, there's a large, uh, and you can probably speak to this better than I can, but your risk for psychotic break, your risk for schizophrenia, if you have a genetic predisposition, there's just so much context around it. And I think the message we're being given now is it's totally risk-free mm-hmm. and it is not risk-free. I'm, I'm going to agree with that, but I definitely think that alcohol certainly outweighs the use of marijuana globally um, and is legal and kills people. So if, if we're talking about, I mean, as a physician, I'm always trying to figure out what's really causing harm. And... THC and in, in, in cannabis is is problematic, can cause problems in young people, specifically people whose brains are developing. Anybody with a history of psychosis should not touch the medicine, right? But I have plenty of people that I know who use it as a replacement for things that have in the past caused them serious harm. And um, it doesn't cause cancer the way that um, tobacco does. So the question is, is what's the right amount? What's the healthy amount? Um, there's a whole movement of microdosing marijuana coming out where it's very minute doses, talking 2.5 milligrams. And would I rather my mom take that on a daily basis than drink four glasses of wine or three glasses of wine? Certainly. So I think it's a much but like, more... are those her only choices? Are her only options taking a little microdose right. of THC or drinking wine? Or are there other therapeutic Tell me, practices? What are, what are the other things? <laughs> I mean, wait, like, I'm, and this is maybe something we're getting ahead of ourselves, yeah. but like, are there other things that we can do to expand our consciousness and to provide therapeutic sure. value that aren't one of those substances? So you mentioned consciousness. I want to come back to, to THC. So this idea, there's a lot of research in, in the extreme cases. So PTSD depression, mental illness, and part of the, the context of that conversation is, is higher consciousness. Not really the same thing, like higher consciousness over here and then PTSD. Why do you think people are making this jump and this connection? And it seems to be working for some people in specific circumstances. And is this really how we're reaching a quote-unquote higher level of consciousness? with regards to mind-altering drugs? I mean, people have been using these since the beginning of time. We've co-evolved with them. So these are not new. These are part of almost every culture in the world. The question is, is in America, why is it that we like to capitalize and commercialize everything into something that seems like it's good for us on a daily, daily regular basis? Um, these, most of these substances largely should be used in context of, context of community. Like the Amazon, people use ayahuasca in community to heal together. And I think that... We aren't necessarily seeing that everywhere, but in some communities in San Francisco, um, LA, and New York, 
I do see the practice of psychedelic use as like a community building practice, as a way to bond with others, as a way to heighten consciousness and expand your consciousness and change your consciousness. And I think um, arguably if you ask anyone in the room, like have you ever wanted to change your mind? Have you ever wanted to change your worldview? Um, and if you've experienced psychedelics, you know that it's a potent tool for that. So I think um, they're not without risk. They certainly can be dangerous and they arguably should be regulated and, and um, people should be able to procure the best quality sources in the world, but that's not the case right now, and so they are risky. So yeah. what physically happens in your brain when you take <clears throat> these things, Ellen? You can go sure. through the list. I know there are different, different drugs we're talking about, but just what's going on here? Yeah, it's an entire field, so I'll do my best to just draw highlights from that. There's two main mechanisms. There's the neurobiochemical and then the psychological. Within neurobiochemical, um, there's serotonin, which is a word we're mostly familiar with at this point because of our antidepressants. So they're highly active in the serotonergic system. They bind the 5-HT2A receptor, so now you know that. And um, that's probably what accounts for the rapid antidepressant and anti-anxiety effect of substances like psilocybin, um, even LSD and ayahuasca. And then um, there's something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So this promotes neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. Translation is your brain can grow and change and adapt. If you're stuck, you can get unstuck. And we were all taught like years ago that if you kill your brain cells, then you never regrow them. And it turns out that that's not true. Um, so psychedelics, plant medicines do promote BDNF and then you can have this kind of change. That has real therapeutic implications for somebody with an entrenched behavioral pattern like addiction, OCD, uh, ruminative depression. Um, these substances are actually anti-inflammatory and we don't really have to teach the mind-body-green crowd that that's relevant since inflammation is a global cause of disease. And there's a really interesting line of research around something called the um, default mode network, or DMN, and that's the part of our brain that really creates our sense of ourselves as separate from other people. And this is the part of our brain where we're hanging out when we're daydreaming, when we're ruminating on the past or future tripping, where we're worrying. And if you take somebody and put them on a psychedelic and then put them in an fMRI, what you see is that activity in the DMN goes down dramatically. So that sense of ourselves, it's suspended for a few hours. And that has interesting implications. That's probably why people can have that sense of an expanded, like what you consider to be part of yourself. You can feel that sense of oneness. I think it has interesting implications for people who experience alienation and isolation, loneliness, trauma, depression. Um, and then there's the psychological pathways. So that's the so-called mystical experience hypothesis. And that's basically saying that if you take these substances with the proper set setting, and you're the right person to take these, not someone who has a predisposition that would make it unsafe, then it's pretty reliable. You're gonna have a peak spiritual life experience. And um, I think the pharmaceutical industry is gonna wanna come in and say, okay, let's isolate the useful part of these substances um, so we can give people all those neurobiochemical benefits, but not the messiness of this trip. Um, but it, there's some research to point to the fact that that trip, the journey itself, is mediating much of the benefit. Um, so it's actually a feature, not a bug. Um, not always easy work, but it's good work. So what happens when there's a quote-unquote bad trip? Bad trips. Um, I'll let someone else start. <laughs> I can tell you about all of mine. Yeah, I can. 
And I think that's important, you know, when yeah. we talk about, you know, genetics, predisposition, yeah. like, is that on a 23andMe test? 23andMe test? Like, I can, I can take acid and I, I, I'm okay? There, I think there are so many factors that right. it's, it's not just your genetic predisposition and your health history. It's like set and setting and the level of trust that sure. you have and then what you're taking because when I was buying it from like Jay on the corner, mm -hmm. I didn't know what he was mixing it with, which is very different than getting right. it from a trained practitioner. Sure. And I, you know, all of the benefits that you described <laughs> and that you just described are wonderful. And if you could guarantee that everyone had that same exact experience, but you, you just don't know. There is absolutely no way to predict somebody can take ayahuasca 20 times and have 19 wonderful mm -hmm. transformative experiences and then have one that, you know, I heard stories even just from talking to some of you today that profoundly negatively impacted every area of their life for you know, years or for who knows how long, like that is the level of risk that we have to talk mm -hmm. about. This is your, sure. your brain. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there actually are some, there's some research on personality tests you can take that can identify specific types of risk factors, like high neuroticism tends to be a higher risk for um, this thing called ketamine emergence phenomenon. So um, that's, that's one way to do it. But again, there's a lot of research that needs to be done to perfectly triangulate what's the right drug for the right person in the right dose, in the right setting, for the right reasons. So why do you think the Valley has really embraced this? Well, there's a few reasons. First of all, the Valley is highly distrustful of current systems and institutions, including healthcare. They want to disrupt things, right? So they, a lot of, but a lot of people that are trying to disrupt things are also distrusting of the things that they're trying to disrupt. So I know many executives who will happily go take a psychedelic to improve their mental health, but they won't go to a psychologist and they won't go to a psychiatrist because they don't, they actually fear that if they're caught in the healthcare system and someone knows that they're getting mainstream healthcare, that they'll never be able to fundraise again. And that's like an actual um, problem. The other thing I see is that I actually know of entrepreneurs who are going to fundraising meetings microdosing because they believe that it gets them into flow state faster. And they believe that they're much more calm and relaxed at these meetings, which is fascinating. Um, I feel crazy. like that's an episode of Silicon Valley that, that, that <laughs> is going me, to appear next season. Trust me, Silicon Valley, the show is very accurate. Um, <laughs> But there's other reasons. Um, creative problem solving is one main reason why I see a lot of people microdosing LSD. I don't know if anyone heard about the history of uh, PCR, polymerase chain reaction, but the man who invented that actually was on psychedelics when he discovered this. Sure. So people are using these to enhance their creative capacity. Molly might be microdosing right now. Yeah. Not today. <laughs> <laughs> so is, is there a last question on microdosing before we move on to some of the other mind-altering drugs. So with regards to LSD and mushrooms, is there data readily available that shares percentages of what we, what we, would, what we would deem a successful enriching experience versus a not-so-good experience? Well, can I tie that back to a bad trip? There's sure. like to, let's separate out two concepts. One is what we shouldn't even call a bad trip, like an unacceptable outcome, which is if the wrong person uses these substances, someone with bipolar disease, someone with schizophrenia, someone who's predisposed, so a first or second degree relative with these conditions, then there's the chance that this actually precipitates a manic or a psychotic episode. That's, we should have zero tolerance for that kind of so-called bad experience. Then there's the bad trip like it was a difficult experience. We probably shouldn't even really be calling that a bad trip. It's such a quality or you know, a, a kind of judgment on it. That's hard work. That's a difficult experience. But that can sometimes be the most profoundly healing and transformative experience. So what we're really lacking culturally is the right set and setting and support for that kind of experience. Um, so what you need is 
a facilitator, you need a safe setting where um, you get into a challenging spot and they can say the right things to help you have a confrontation with something difficult in your past. Maybe you're having a confrontation with profound grief or sadness or trauma and this can be really good work and to be able to be supported and do that work, you can come away from a so-called bad trip really helped by it. Sure. And what is the, the fundamental purpose behind this? Like, what is it, when you're talking about the work, yeah. what, do you, what do you mean? Like, why, why should somebody who is just living their life enter into this equation? Yeah, no, not, not everybody necessarily should. I think that some people are stuck. They're suffering because of profound grief that they're not really fully feeling or trauma that hasn't been fully metabolized. And so for them, you know, you can, there are options. You can pick up a meditation practice. You can be in therapy for years and years. Um, you can have this kind of experience. And they all do similar work, but basically it's to take us into what we're working with rather than numbing us to it. And I think that helps us get unstuck. I think a lot of the best research right now um, really relates back to the, the, work that, the work that MAPS is doing, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. And if you haven't heard of this organization, you should really read their website because they're doing the real clinical research behind MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. And the FDA actually um, has called this a breakthrough therapy because of its efficacy in comparison to everything else that we have so far. It's just way, way above um, the expected rates of remission. So um, there's some great videos on YouTube of veterans that have come back and gone through these programs and have significantly improved their ability to function in modern life um, from these massive wounds from battle. So, But, but the integration after yes. the experience, I think, right. is the most important part, and that's the part that so many people are missing. I don't know necessarily that I agree that this should be an entry point into therapy. Mm -hmm. Like, had I had I, I think, not done all of the work that I had done beforehand and then, you know, tried that experience, I don't know that I would have been mentally prepared for something like that. But I think integration after the fact so that you're not left with this, like, expanded consciousness and yeah. then you're just dumped back into your old life. Mm -hmm. Totally With agree. no support and no guidance mm -hmm. and no, you know, yeah. additional like, therapeutic practices yeah. to support this new information. I would 100%. argue it's like 10% is this um, peak life experience and 90% of the effect comes from the integration yeah. afterward. Yep. Yep. So I'm, we're going to move on to marijuana and THC, come back to that. I want to, we touched on this a little bit, like long-term effects, like what, what is your take from a medical perspective on long-term effects there that we're not paying attention to? Hmm. Are we talking about THC and not CBD? Yes. Okay. Um, I mean, I, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of questions whether or not it's good for us long-term. Some people believe that it reduces risk of dementia. Some people believe that it increases. Um, I, I'm in the, the camp that I think it's probably, um, it, it seems to have some serious anti-inflammatory effects. It seems to be helpful for cancer therapy. So the real question is, does it prevent cancer? I don't think we really know the answers to these questions, honestly. I agree. I think we need more research. Yeah. I think that in a way we need to the theme of all of this is these are all medicines, right? And so they all need to be approached with the same gravity as something that's a pharmaceutical and these kinds of plants. And I think that when we're thinking about, it shouldn't be that it's like everybody's turmeric chai latte every morning and it's just like that. It's, it's right. medicine that you're going to use for specific purposes. But because of that, we really need to bring gravity to it and to bring a lot of research and understanding. Right. So I guess the person who sort of set, the, set off this discussion, Michael Pollan, recently had a, a great quote in the New York Times where he wrote, I'll read this, now when you leave for the airport in Quito, 
there are people with signs for ayahuasca ceremony instead of taxi. These people became shamans like last week. People are getting hurt. This seems to illustrate a fear of making drug culture mainstream culture, or at least illustrates the idea of too much, perhaps too quickly. Should we be skeptical of drug culture entering wellness culture? 100%. I think it's super problematic when we step into this mindset that, um, that the solutions that we seek in terms of our overall, overall well-being um, are to be found in these externalities. You know? And I think, to be sure, there are certain places for these compounds. We've heard about PTSD and vets and people who have severe mental disorders. But in general, uh, you know, to your to your point and your question about why is Silicon Valley like you know wholeheartedly embracing this, uh, that is a culture that's known for its obsession for shortcuts and hacking sure. and all these. So they're trying to find the quickest way to a certain result. And I think people look at these compounds and say, this is the quickest way that I can reach this mindset or resolve this. Um, mental barrier that I'm trying to break through, and they're doing it in a way that's forsaking the internal work, Mm -hmm. like the deep searching internal work that's really required, the grappling, the therapy, all of these things that I think are mandatory in terms of creating that that connection with self and that level of self-awareness and and self-understanding. John Mackey talked about um, cannot be circumvented, and, and to the extent that these things are tools, fine, but let's, uh, you know, let's be clear that um, the real work is, is in that internal yeah, calculus. I, I also want to add on top of that that um, you really, if you're going to experiment with this stuff, you've got to choose your shaman like you would your neurosurgeon. And people going to Peru, just getting off an airport, going and randomly handing their brain to someone that's a total stranger is absolutely insane. And I well, I like what you it. just said. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> Handing your brain to a total stranger. Because I think the context of drugs and tripping yeah. has been in that context, at least it was for me in college yeah. and everyone else. It's just... And who typically hands you the drug? A pusher. Someone who's pushing something on you that is usually a higher dose than you need. So, you know, I, I would argue that um, some of the reasons why I've seen people in... Silicon Valley also using these medicines, especially ketamine right now, is the, there's actually a lot of suicidality. There's a lot of startup founders who are too afraid to go get help, and then they get to the point where they're about to kill themselves. And then they're like, I need to get something, I need to do something now. And you can actually go to clinics all over San Francisco and even emergency rooms and get an infusion of ketamine, which will abort your suicidality very quickly. And it's a psychedelic. Um, and you know, the real question behind that is, why are we creating work culture that's so unhealthy that you're breaking your brain and that you're just resorting to that? So, Melissa and Rich, you've both talked about overcoming addiction. How does addiction play a part in this conversation, and and why do we need to be very mindful of that as we're talking about multiple mind-altering drugs here? Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think I have the... I, I have to walk this balance between, like, I have this lived life experience where I, I have this, like, kind of cautionary tale, but at the same time, I don't want to be the person who's, like, gone so far the other way that I can't see any benefits to it whatsoever mm-hmm. because of my own experience. I do think that there's a large correlation that we're not looking at uh, with particularly marijuana as a gateway drug. Like, I know that's so Nancy Reagan. <laughs> But I think that there's also a lot of truth to it. I do think people are looking for shortcuts, and you see that everywhere, not just with 
you know, drug use, but with nutrition and with fitness. I do think that you see people who take a very specific, contextual, maybe cultural practice, and they see it working very well in this particular context, then they, then they extrapolate it out to say, this works equally well for everyone all the time, and there's a lot of danger in that. So, you know, I do want people to be aware of, of the risks. I do want people to be aware that it is not, um, you can't just, you know, expect to receive the same exact benefit. It's not like a, a cookie-cutter approach, and I think... In my own experience, because of my own biochemistry and because of my recovery, it's not something I would ever touch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with her completely. I think that was very well said. It's difficult for me to be objective about this because of my own personal experience, and it is important for me to try to step outside of that and understand you know, different points of view. But for me, when you tell me uh, that everything that ails me and all the answers that I see can be found in this crazy, powerful, mind-altering substance, I'm just like, where do I sign up? You know, that just activates, like, everything that is unhealthy in me. And that's a huge, war you know, warning sign, like a red flag for me. And, and, uh, and I can't erase um, relationships that I've had with people and experiences that I've had with, with people over the years that have jumped off the roof because they were on ketamine mm -hmm. or, you know, just could never get off the couch because they couldn't stop smoking pot. And it is a very Nancy Reagan, you know, yeah. kind of trite thing to say. But I've, I've seen it and I have friends who are in that place. And it goes back to this idea that, um, that I, that I want to make sure everybody understands that these things are not innocuous. They are very powerful. And to the extent that you're going to go to Peru and, you know, find that shaman at the airport and hand him your brain, mm -hmm. you are inviting an incredibly powerful substance into your consciousness without the tools or the acumen to understand what it's actually doing cool. to you. And I think in certain situations for certain people, I've seen it been transformative for them in a positive way. But I would imagine that the majority of experiences are people who are not fully equipped with the tools required to, to know how to navigate that in a way that they're going to come out the other side and benefit from it. And if that was not the case, there'd be a lot of people walking around right now who are enlightened. And I don't see that. Right. This, say, I, Jason, I think this goes back to the idea of decriminalization. And with the exception of Oakland and Denver right now, we are in a state of prohibition with psychedelics. And Yet, there is widespread psychedelic use, and a lot of it's not safe. And so I think it's counterintuitive, but when you look at the precedents, like in Northern Europe and Portugal, places that have decriminalization and a really robust harm reduction model, mm -hmm. they have better outcomes and less harm than we do in any city in the United States. So I think, in a way, I hope the United mm -hmm. States can pull this off, but basically, not just like everything's legal now, and then billboards with scantily clad mm -hmm. women being like, you should really vape cannabis right. right now. I think it's that we need to be thoughtful about what does harm reduction look like? How do we bring cultural norms up so that we know who should approach these substances, who should not, right. in what setting, what's going to make it safe, what's going to make it beneficial, an expectation on what kind cool. of integration you do afterward. Well, the thing I would add there is there still is uncertainty, in my point of view, in reading everything and listening. There, there still is a level of uncertainty with these substances. And to me, w within... You know, you mess up your microbiome, like, I think we can, you know, fix that. Mm -hmm. If you roll the dice with your mental health, mm -hmm. it is very hard to reclaim that, your mental health once. And I've seen that, I've shared stories, lost mm -hmm. people, and I've seen that play out in the real world. And for anyone who struggles with mental health, anxiety, like severe cases, loved ones, we could go through 
um, the numerous ailments people suffer from, it is very hard to reclaim that. Mm -hmm. And so my opinion is if there's, if there's inherent risk and if you're not 100% familiar, whether it's DNA or genetics and what's accurate or whatnot, there's a risk. This could not have a great outcome. And the risk far outweighs the reward when you talk about your mental health, in my opinion. Uh, so I thought I'd add that. <laughs> so one thing, I'm gonna close on this, this idea of uh, uh, you know, consciousness. So people are using this to raise consciousness, expand consciousness. Uh, how can you do this without mind-altering substances? Let's talk about the good things we can do, mm -hmm, like sure. breath work maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Meditation. meditation. I've talked, yeah. Todd uh, McCullough is here in the audience. He taught me a meditation practice that has been absolutely life-changing for me. Like one of the three most life-changing experiences that I've ever had. And I feel like I do. It has opened me up to God. It's opened me up to myself. It, it has allowed me to achieve all of the benefits that we talked about without having to take a single mind-altering substance. I, I will, will agree that meditation is a powerful tool in the toolbox of optimizing and improving and expanding consciousness. However... I will add that there are people who've gone to Vipassana retreats without proper training and, ha and had psychotic breaks. Exactly. So, yeah. like, this happens. And holotropic. So, doctrine. like, I actually went to a meditation retreat and I tripped so hard on my own brain chemistry, completely sober. It was wild. And I was, I mean, I've had experience with psychedelics, so I, I'm comfortable in that state, but I was not expecting to see what I saw and to have these experiences. So I, I kind of try to tell everybody, like, if you're trying to get to the top of the mountain, you can take a psychedelic there, without any training and like fly a plane, you might crash it, okay? Or you could do the meditation path, the daily gentle five to 10 minutes, 20 minutes, slowly build the capacity to hike that mountain. Or you can go to Vipassana and just try to like do it all in one day. You gotta be really careful and kind of know where your brain's at and do the subtle body building to get yourself to the place where you're confident and comfortable enough in that space to not get hurt. So how do you guys define sobriety? There are some people who say like, you know, I trip, but I'm sober. So California what is sobriety? sobriety? How do you define being sober? Me. I'd love to hear. There, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that definition is a very personal one, and I don't have any opinions on how other people define sobriety for themselves. For me, um, there's, there's physical sobriety, which means uh, living free of, of mind-altering uh, drugs and alcohol. Uh, and then there's emotional sobriety, which is an ongoing, you know, lifelong journey of trying to live a more balanced, productive life and not let my character defects, uh, you know, create havoc and damage in my life. Yeah, I'm very, mm -hmm. I'm very um, adamant about protecting everybody's right to define their own sobriety for themselves. I love that. Okay, guys, we're going to open up for questions. Oh, wow, there's lots. Okay. <laughs> So, um, question for Max. Uh, some high-level athletes are starting to microdose uh, psilocybin. Have you seen, have any of you seen or conducted research on how this can potentially improve athletic performance? That's fascinating. People. I've yeah. never heard of that. I, That's I know nothing about that. I mean, like, athleticism is largely psychological, right? The person who wins is the one who can endure the most pain at the end of the day. <laughs> so, I would argue that if you can get more control over your mind, um, and get into that flow state, you might have a better performance. Another great one, Todd McCullough. I see where psychedelics in a safe setting could be helpful, but would you agree this is putting a, a Band-Aid on, on a bigger issue, like lack of meaning and purpose? And if so, how are you helping, helping people find a long-term solution? 
Nailed that's it. the integration. Right. That's the exactly. that's the context. It has to be part of that bigger picture context. For whom and why? Yeah. And let's not forget about the connection to community. I mean, at the end of the day, like, why are people turning into these, and what's missing from their lives? And in traditional cultures, these are often used in community. Yeah. So yeah. this is sort of it's all integration and the experience all rolled into one. Another good one from Alan. What are the most common symptoms of a psychotic episode after consuming one of these substances? What changes in the brain? Is it reversible? Asking for a friend. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I've taken these things. I've seen the good and bad. So, Well, a lot of people look and feel psychotic when they're on these substances. And so it's really just a matter of does the trip end. Exactly. Um, and, you know, we, the risk is real, but it is small. And um, they've done a lot of really good research on this to see that in populations that engage with these substances, there's not that much of an increase in these sort of things. So I think that there's been a moral panic around these substances that it's, we're suggestible. Like we have an idea in mind of like, oh God, I just lost my mind because I was stupid and I did something like this. So you take all that into consideration, but you wouldn't do this alone. Even if these become legal, you don't want to do this alone in your bedroom. So you would do this with somebody who is in the right mind, who can hold space for you, keep you safe, and also reflect back to you like, you know, okay, you're actually acting normal or you're not acting normal. Another good one from Mike Taylor, being very provocative. VCs have pushed all kinds of questionable things just to make money. Now they're in charge of pushing drugs. Do we have any hope of appropriate regulation? Or do we trust that them? That was what you, when you were saying, I hope America goes, I'm mm. like, no, 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 we've got really um, ad, like, uh, capital lobbies for this stuff that, that see the money-making potential. And anytime mm -hmm. you have something that's illegal where there's a lot of interest, you get a lot of people making a lot of money on the sidelines. You know, it's grotesque in both directions, right? So right now, so criminalization We'd like to think that the population are the real beneficiaries of that, but there's a lot of moneyed interest in that too. So the prison industrial complex, the wine and spirits industry, the pharmaceutical industry, um, they're really the ones who are benefiting most of all from criminalization. Um, but I think that there's, on the other side, companies that are going to put ayahuasca in a can, and it's really distressing. So, yeah, I almost, I think maybe we should just all move to Portugal, like a place that I can mean, actually be responsible in both directions. I really want to answer this question as well, and I think they've made really good points, all of you. Um, this is a really, like, this is like a can of worms, but there's actually a bunch of venture firms that are coming out to create um, pathways for these drugs to get approved. But this has already happened. GHB is now a drug called Zyrem. You can get it for narcolepsy with catabolexy. A ton of VCs in Silicon Valley are taking it to sleep. Um, Off-label. Um, amphetamines, Adderall. Widely prescribed. It's a drug, right. I mean, it's very close to amphetamines. So, like, this has already happened. Opioids, same thing. So what we're going to see is we're going to see the same thing happen to psychedelics, same thing happen to ketamine. And, you know, the real question is, is are we going to create bigger epidemics and bigger addiction pathways and bigger problems, or are we going to reduce harm and actually help people heal? That is a big question. I mean, yeah, you just used Adderall and opioids as an example. So that's like <laughs> right? cautionary right there. Exactly. We need to be really careful. Yeah. yeah. That is all the time we have for questions. <laughs> and I think I'm, I'm leaving this panel with more questions. But thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you.